halls are silent, despite the noise of life beyond the doors. Life is a party until it's over, until the heart within your chest refuses to beat, and all you're left with is haunted memories of times long ago that have cemented you to this place, to this moment, the worst moment of your life. It's here that you reach out for someone, anyone, to hear your story. You are desperate for someone to understand, to take note, to free you from the chains that bind you. Will she listen? I most certainly will. I'm here to tell their stories. These are the whispers of Ybor City. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. I sold myself to the devil, one kiss at a time. He told me it was over his marriage, but his daughter's eyes haunted me. The anger, the pain, the condemnation. But how could I turn away and offer to have everything? How could I resist the prestige, the charm, the promise of education and wealth? But it was all a facade, a mold ready to break, already cracking at the seams. Looking back, I can see the tiny hairline fracture on his perfect porcelain face. He'd build a set, a stage, not a life. What he offered wasn't a promise. It was a trap, set to steal my innocence, my youth, and eventually, my life. My fingers slid down the smooth wood banister expensive shoes click clacking my fancy skirt following after draping down each step he knew i knew just as his first wife knew about me he was a sick man thriving on drinking girls blood yes a monster that's what he was I could hear the soothing tone of his voice as he spoke to her in the other room. I wondered where he'd take her, how long she'd try to avoid his allure. I stepped into the room, locked eyes on his new young mistress, and saw a flash of fear cross her face. He may have stolen my life, but he'd never be rid of my soul. I'd haunt him forever. He began his usual rant, how I'd been interrupting his time with a patience, how I'd been rude. You spoke to me of decency, when such a word was never written in your diction or demeanor. I had lost myself in this hazy dream. I stood on the outside, looking in on myself. Her, 
Where is she? Someone sliced her from temple to tip and folded her inside out. She stood there staring at me with empty sockets, like some starched, morbid costume, like a caricature of someone who really existed, but never in that exaggerated form. No, you never belonged, because she never belonged. We were both lost in some fantasy that seemed innocently beautiful, but like those children's nursery rhymes, we were really dark and deadly. Your love in her heart bled like an ancient poison that morphed her into something new, something superhuman with true seeing eyes. Your lies, your lies. Oh, how I see them now. With a snake's tongue, you slithered her with deceitful whispers, disguised as sweet nothings. Every touch of your lips left her more and more defenseless. No more wicked games of solitude and company. You stood in front of me a stranger, only known in a parallel universe. Strangely, her death seemed so sudden to you. I can see it in your eyes, but for me, it was years of painful agony. Our wedding, our union, is now nothing more than a private funeral of a love once possessed. The city of Ybor is a district covering the historic Ybor neighborhood in Tampa, Florida. The area is covered in rich architectural, culinary, cultural, and historical heritage that reflects its multi-ethnic background. Uniquely, Ybor was a thriving industrial community founded and inhabited almost exclusively by immigrants. It was founded in 1885 by a group of cigar manufacturers under the direction of Vincent Martinez Ybor as a separate city yet attached to Tampa in 1887. The original population consisted mainly of Cuban and Spanish immigrants who worked in cigar factories. Shortly after that, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe arrived. They brought a wealth of industry with them, including many retail outlets farms and grocery stores, boxes, printers, and other companies dealing with cigars and their employees. The district quickly grew in the 1890s and developed from a primitive outpost to a city of modern conveniences. Ybor City developed and prospered in the 1920s, and at that time, the factories produced nearly half a billion handmade cigars each year and gave Tampa the nickname of Cigar City. The depression in the early 1930s led to a sharp decline in the worldwide demand for small cigars, and Ybor City economic base suffered greatly. Another interesting fact about Ybor is that the city was mostly lawless for most of its early life. Immigrants lived by a code. There were no laws or enforcement. If someone killed someone, the only retribution to fear was that of their family. 
killed a man? His brother, dad, or friend may come after you. Since these occurrences weren't well documented, historians are left with a murky view of Ebor's real history. Today, Ebor is booming with restaurants, shops, and nightlife. Walking down the busy streets is reminiscent of New Orleans. It was explained to us that after a massive city fire, the buildings were rebuilt with brick by investors from New Orleans, hence the similar style. The memory of its history can still be seen, but the whole atmosphere of the place shifts when the sun goes down. The haunts roam the streets, and if you look closely, you may even catch a glimpse of something in the dark windows overhead. There are lots of ghostly stories to be told about Ybor City, but a few stand out. We went on two of the most popular ghost tours in Ybor, so I could bring you the most interesting of the tales. First is the Chop House, which is a restaurant in the heart of the city. The Chop House is located in the building that once housed the first Latin social club. In 1912, El Centro Español served as the social hub for Spanish immigrants who worked in the cigar factories. The first floor, where the restaurant is located, functioned as a cantina in those days. The restaurant even serves a similar menu to what was served over 100 years ago. But what's really fascinating about the restaurant is an object that sits outside the back doors. Tucked in a small niche is a large black safe. We happened upon the safe while exploring and I'll just tell you, it not only looks out of place, but it also is quite intimidating. Our tour guide Steve explained to me that the safe is an incredibly haunted object. Legend has it that a fire broke out there and people were not able to escape because the safe was blocking the door. Now, employees of the restaurant claim there's an uneasy feeling hovering in the second-story kitchen. Another stop on our tour was the Treyas Clinic. Picture us, a large group of 20, standing on the opposite side of the road, staring at an empty lot. It's evident that something once stood there, but sadly arson had claimed the building a few years prior. Built in the 1890s as a Cuban coffee roasting house on the first floor and clinic to the world-renowned Dr. Jorge Treyas on the second. The doctor was a proud father to four beautiful daughters and also a husband. Known as the stiff-hand man, the doctor's career thrived because of his ability to use the scalpel without leaving a scar. He eventually buys the whole building and brings in other doctors. He even creates an amphitheater for spectators to look down and watch as he performs surgeries. Yeah, entertainment looked a lot different before Netflix. Too bad he wasn't as great of a husband as he was a doctor. You see, this good doctor had a naughty secret. He had a thirst for underaged girls. His wife knew all about his escapades but she rather enjoyed being the wife of an infamous and wealthy doctor, so she turned a blind eye. But that all changes with one 12-year-old girl, Conchita, 
the inspiration for the fiction piece earlier. She was considered the most beautiful girl in the city, and she knew it. She had so much attention for her looks that she decided to focus on doing something good with her time. She dreamed of helping people, and accepting the advances of the doctor provided her the opportunity she'd been looking for. With his help, she learned anesthesia and learned how to deliver babies. She was quick on her way to becoming the angel of mercy she always hoped to become. The only problem was the doctor's wife. Dr. Treus wanted to marry Conchita, so he shipped his wife away and marries the 12-year-old girl. After a decade of marriage, though, the doctor set his eyes on another young girl, and he throws Conchita on the streets and demands that no one speak to her. Because of his reputation, people comply, but a few beg for him to at least provide for her. She didn't deserve to be homeless. He eventually concedes and builds her a shack where she becomes a recluse and an alcoholic. He begins life with his new wife, but he soon develops diabetes and gets sick. He was thrown out of his own clinic and found himself homeless as well. Conchita, being the nice person she was, took him in, nursing him back to health for two years before she drank herself to death at the age of 30. She once haunted the building, but since it's been burned, sightings of her have begun at the neighboring building, where 12 to 13-year-old girls were prostitutes and were murdered. People like to believe that she continues to be the angel of mercy to those ghosts, helping them even beyond the grave. Just around the corner from Treyas Clinic is another famous haunted building known as the Don Vincente Inn. The inn was once a community clinic ran by another Ebor doctor, Dr. Avayanal. He was an upstanding citizen involved in numerous civic groups around the city, but he had a son who was not only eccentric, but also a little unstable. Dr. Avayanal had a nurse that helped both with the patients and his son. The previous owners of the Don Vincente claimed to see this nurse lurking around the basement in an episode of The Dead Files named Hotel Hell. When physical medium Amy Allen conducted an investigation, she saw the nurse who was continuing to take care of people forever stuck performing her duties. And she also ran into several souls trapped within the wall where the incinerator in the morgue once was. Upstairs, she encountered some terrifying activity as well. Beware rooms 302 and 305. The inn has been permanently closed, and no one is allowed in the building. Rumors are that the Department of Defense owns the ghostly building now. Below the Don Vincente is a series of tunnels that connect a few of the neighboring buildings. One of them is the El Pasai. The El Pasai was built in 1888, also called the Cherokee Club. It was a gathering place for the elite. The bottom story was a private club, and the second floor was a private hotel for Mr. Ebor's guests. After he dies, the second floor becomes a brothel filled with 11 to 13-year-old girls. 
As if that isn't bad enough, these girls had to win a beauty contest to become prostitutes there. People have reportedly snapped pictures of orbs and ghostly images on the walkway that wraps around the building. Its curved brick pillars and architecture is beautiful, but at night there's something genuinely spooky about just walking past it. Down the street from the El Pasaje is Ebor's most haunted building. Standing four stories high is the Grand Cuban Club. There are numerous stories associated with this place. We were lucky enough to conduct our first ever ghost hunt there, alongside our guide Chrissy and a handful of others. A week later, we returned with a different guide and heard even more stories. We used a series of tools to help in our research. A thermal gun, an EVP app, EMF meters, divining rods, night vision, and more. It was amazing to have so much at our fingertips. On the fourth floor is the ballroom. It's a large open space with wood floors and an ornate wrought iron arch for the entrance. Here, our other wonderful guide, Steve, told us about Rosalita. She was a beautiful young woman who was here for a dance one night long ago. A particular fellow had asked her repeatedly for a dance, but she refused him every time. Before recent renovations, the upstairs windows were French doors with tiny iron balconies. Enraged by her refusals, he pushed her over a balcony where she fell to her death. Many have claimed to see her, dressed in white, still dancing in the ballroom. We didn't catch any imagery of her, but one thing that did happen startled us. We were alone upstairs with two other hunters. They were in a back room behind a set of curtains and they were asking questions, trying to make contact, when we heard a really loud thud, like something had fallen where they were. Later, when we asked them what happened, they said nothing fell. There actually wasn't anything in there to fall, from what I saw. And they didn't hear anything, at all. So spooky. On the third floor is where the legend of El Fumador originates. El Fumador is the nickname of the club's former president who was accused of skimming money from the club. Supposedly, he was shot by fellow board members. He's rumored to still haunt the building, paying special attention to young Latinas who, in his mind, as it was told to us, should be home tending to the house and to their husband's needs. On the second floor, or main floor, is the theater. It's a beautiful large room with red cushioned chairs and a ceiling painted like the sky. Art deco decor surrounds everything in the building, but the theater truly shines. There, the club hosted traveling Broadway shows with top performances. A young man by the name of Raul was a local actor and playwright for the club. He rents the theater in 1919 for a performance, but halfway through, he forgets his lines and is laughed off stage. At 4 a.m. the next morning, he returns to the theater, recites the forgotten words of the script, and hangs himself behind the stage. From what we're told, the janitor and our guide have heard those words in the darkness when alone in the theater. 
We did catch differences in temperature using the thermal gun there. And there were some seriously creepy vibes in the dressing rooms and on the sides of the stage. Every floor has its story, but none of them were more heartbreaking than the one of the basement. A young boy drowned in the basement pool, believed to be around eight to nine years old. There's been some speculation as to how this happened. It could have been an accident, but it's also rumored that it was a cover-up. Some people believe that a member of the club had been sexually abusing some of the children. Could it be that he was killed to keep it quiet? We can't know for sure. What we do know is that the TAPS team of ghost hunters made significant contact with the boy there in the episode Club Dead. Using a flashlight, they asked him several questions, all of which he responded to by turning the flashlight on and off again. Our guide also shared a photo that a tourist captured of him peeking over the bar top. In the basement, the tour guides have left balls there for the ghosts to play with. And as soon as we stepped down there, one of them was twirling around. I could hardly believe it. Another creepy thing happened while we were down there too. The elevator began opening and closing randomly. It's hard to say if it was supernatural or not, but we had used it before this incident and it had worked fine. After the Ghost Hunters investigation, the Travel Channel deemed the Cuban Club the fourth most haunted building in the country. Remember earlier how I told you about Dr. Avanal's strange son from the Don Vincente Inn? Well, the story gets even more bizarre. He's a name you will most certainly hear over and over again when touring Ybor City, and for good reason. Jose Luis Avanal Jr. showed early signs of being a, of questionable character. He shot a fellow student in the eye as a schoolboy which his dad mended and settled with the family. Then later, he convinced a friend to try out his homemade electric chair. His friend was severely injured, but luckily survived to tell the tale. When in college, he supposedly assaulted a girl while visiting a schoolmate in Tennessee. His father bailed him out of that one, too. As he aged, he became fascinated with Shelley's Frankenstein and believed in the resurgence of life through electricity. During this time, cats from all over the city started to go missing, and rumors swirled that young Avanal was freezing them and performing experiments in his father's old lab. Avanal was booted out of the clinic and his father made arrangements for him to live across the street at the El Basaje, where he lived until he died. Both of our tour guides claimed that stories began to swirl about Avanal's dealings. He knew about the underground passages, had access to the clinic's incinerator through them, and possibly could have done human experiments and covered those up by burning the bodies. There are tales of female bones and nails found in the passageways. Though this is all speculation, Avanal's character makes one wonder. Avanal began printing fake university degrees 
and claimed to be a gynecologist. He also wore a captain's suit and demanded that everyone call him captain. He died in the 1980s, but rumors of his life continue. In the Dead Files episode, medium Amy Allen claims to have made contact with a Van All. When asked if she believed if he was a killer, she said she didn't. It remains a real mystery. As if the tales surrounding Ebor's past aren't eerie enough, an article in the Tampa Bay Times dated November 2017 said, quote, Twice, a man in his early 20s has stalked the streets of Tampa under the cloak of darkness, used a gun to snatch the lives of random victims, was identified in Ebor City under odd circumstances and arrested, end quote. In 2017, a 24-year-old man was arrested for committing four murders. A century before, almost to the date, another man by the name of Robert Anderson roamed Ebor streets, stealing lives. Anderson is dubbed Tampa's first serial killer, taking his first victim in December of 1911. An anonymous note was sent to the sheriff's office warning them that if, quote, white men don't stop having relations with the black women on Fifth Avenue, he'd burn the city to the ground. And he nearly did just that, torching about 100 homes and a city social club. He continued killing both men and women. He'd dress as a woman to conceal his identity. When a police officer finally caught a description of Anderson, Anderson was eventually arrested tried and sentenced to death by hanging. The rope used to kill him was divided up and given to onlookers as a souvenir. If you ever find yourself in Tampa, you should carve out some time to visit Ybor City and maybe even go on a few tours. You never know what you may encounter on a tour. Just be sure not to bring anything home with you. Fabled was produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you'd like to see photos of the places mentioned in this episode, be sure to follow us on social media at Fable Collective. To book your own Ebor City tour, visit our website for recommendations, fablecollective.com. Many thanks to my wonderful patrons, Whitney, Mary, Laurie, Camera, Katie, and Ronnie, for making this episode possible. Become a patron for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash fablecollective. And that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash fablecollective. Until next time, thank you for listening.